we are going to look at the subject today. So we are actually finishing a series that we started. Uh, this is the fourth week, four weeks ago, on looking at various elements and aspects of events in Jesus' life. Uh, we looked at Jesus as a suffering depiction of God. We looked at Jesus as dying. Uh, and we saw Jesus last Sunday as the resurrecting depiction of God. And today we're going to take a look at Jesus in terms of the reigning depiction of God, uh, known by an event that's uh, called the Ascension. Uh, maybe you've heard of it. Uh, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but if I were to ask you, how many of you heard about the suffering, the death, the resurrection of Jesus? Probably most of us. Those would be uh, ideas that would be familiar to us. But the concept of the ascension of Jesus would be something that's a little bit less uh, known or less uh, identified in terms of an event of Jesus' life. So what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to pray, and then uh, we'll just jump right in. So let me pray. We'll move in. God, thank you for drawing our hearts here. And we ask, God, that you would allow our hearts and our minds to see what it is that you have to speak to us. God, we pray that we'd be open to learn, to grow, to allow Scripture to inform and challenge and transform the way that we understand who you are and what you've done, what you're up to currently right now in this world. So God, we devote and commit this time in your hands, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, So I want to start with a uh, simple statement that I kind of carefully constructed, so hopefully it'll uh, read well. Um, Basically, the ascension is the most important event in Jesus' life, which gets forgotten and or ignored by the modern church. Uh, the Ascension is the most important event in Jesus' life, which gets forgotten and or ignored by the modern church. Now, I realize it's kind of a big statement um, that probably would need to be proved, and my aim today is not to spend time proving that, but to assume that um, simply by way of oftentimes the lack of data or information or sermons or messages. Um, I can't speak for the bigger, broader body of Christ or the church, but I can speak for myself. And I can say that I have not spoken about the ascension of Jesus Christ uh, as much as I've talked about his death, suffering, his resurrection. Uh, so so I, I know from me, personal experience, uh, this statement is true. And my guess uh, and or assumption would be that it's probably true on a bigger, broader scale. Now, uh, within many of the mainline churches, I would say that this is maybe not so much true, or at least what's known as what's called the creedal churches, or churches that uh, oftentimes recite the Apostles' Creed every week, because part of the uh, recitation of that creed would also be uh, um, honorable mention to this event called the Ascension. So anyways, um, we have ushers that want to give you guys Bibles because they're awesome. So if you guys don't have a Bible, you will need a Bible this morning. Um, so raise your hands if you need a Bible. We'd be happy to get you a Bible. Um, there'll be also passages on the screen. So with that being said, I want to just jump right in and begin to look at the subject of the Ascension of Jesus. So uh, one other final thing before I jump in is today is actually the last message in this like little mini four-part series that we looked at. And then guess what we're going to be in next week? Anybody want to take a random, wild, crazy guess what we'll be jumping back into next week? Book of Acts. Yes, you guys are so on top of it. Thank you for showing me that you do pay attention. That's awesome. Thank you. That, that means a lot to me. Um, yes, we'll be actually back in this random book that we have not been in for a really long time, the Book of Acts. So we... I uh, had started teaching through the book of Acts, like verse by verse, chapter by chapter. It feels like uh, it, um, an eternity ago. And then we, uh, we took a break from that. We looked at a whole series of other messages. And now we're getting back in the book of Acts. 
Next week, we'll be in chapter 15. So if you want to read up and kind of uh, be a little bit of a breast as to what we'll be looking at next week, read the end of chapter 15, and then uh, you'll be up to speed. We'll jump back into the book of Acts and be making our way through that until we get to the very end. That's kind of how we do things, uh, unless we, we, we don't do it that way. And, and, <laughs> uh, and we, the past few months, we, we haven't done it that way because we've kind of felt that God has had us to address a handful of other subjects. So uh, with that being said, let's jump in, take a look at the subject of this uh, really important event of Jesus' life. So just by way of an outline, here's the three things we'll basically look at or I'll be looking at this morning. One, we'll just look at the event, the actual data, the actual historical event that took place. We'll read the accounts of the life of Jesus in which we're told this story by way of uh, the eyewitnesses, who witnesses that were there. They wrote this, what we would call inspired word of God. And then secondly, we'll take a look at the meaning um, another way to think about this, we'll follow uh, biblical breadcrumbs and kind of follow where the trail leads. Uh, the final thing is we will end with uh, trying to make some implications or draw out some implications, like uh, be very practical. Like what significance and importance does this event? So if I were to ask you, what significance important, uh, importance does Jesus' death have in your life? you might be able to rattle off some answers. If I were to ask you what significance and importance does Jesus' resurrection have upon your life, you might be able to rattle off some theological answers. But if I were to ask you what significance and importance does the ascension of Jesus have upon your life, I think that's, again, where we might get a little bit like fuzzy. So I want to try to bring some clarity in terms of thinking about this event, follow its meaning, and then end on some implications for you and I today, 2017, trying to make sense of following God in this world. So with that, let's jump in. The event. So we'll look at two passages. Uh, one is uh, out of the book of Luke, chapter 24. Uh, why don't you turn there if you would. You can keep your finger there and then turn forward a little bit. Jump a book called, uh, uh, let's see, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Uh, John, jump John. Get to the book of Acts. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I did have to think about that. Um, um, anyways, uh, end of Luke, beginning of Acts, um, chapter 1. So most of you guys know that the book of Luke uh, and the book of Acts are uh, what most scholars would identify as a two-part volume, two-part series. Volume 1, we call the book of Luke, uh, the Gospel of Luke. Volume 2, we call the, uh, the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, or the Acts of the Holy Spirit, the Acts of... Jesus through the Holy Spirit, through church, however you want to describe it. But it is a two-part volume, two-part series written by one author. And what's unique about this is that Luke ends his uh, gospel story about Jesus with the event, the event of the ascension. But it's so important in the mind of Luke, he opens volume two with the same event. It's fascinating. So I want to take some time to think about this. At least just read the story, and then we'll move on into some of the meaning of it. So here we go. Luke chapter 24, picking up at about verse 50 uh, to 53, says this. Jesus led them out from Bethany, as far as Bethany. Lifting up his hands, he blessed them. So Jesus is doing what we would describe as sort of a, uh, a priestly blessing or pastoral blessing. Um, maybe uh, reciting the doxology uh, the Lord bless thee, the Lord keep thee, however, we're not, not really told, but this is probably some fo- form of like a priestly activity that Jesus is saying, uh, I'm giving you my blessing, he's blessing them. In verse 51 it says, while he blessed them, he parted from them 
and he entered, or he was carried up into heaven. No, wait, what? <laughs> exactly what the passage says. And again, this gets a little bit interesting, because here's Jesus on a mountaintop with his disciples. He's blessing his disciples, giving this, pronouncing this priestly blessing over them, and then all of a sudden, he is taken out of their sight up into heaven. This is the story that we're given. Verse 52, and then it says, and then was the response. They worshiped, and then they returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continuously in the temple uh, play, uh, um, blessing God. So the event of Jesus ascending, it's where we get the word ascension from, ascending, rising, um, and then the uh, apostles or the followers of Jesus' response, great joy, preaching, uh, worshiping, all of these things are the direct response of their translation, their interpretation of what Jesus ascending to the Father meant. Next passage, Acts chapter 1, verse 6 through 11, uh, says this. And again, this is volume 2 of the story of Luke, telling us about the life of Jesus and the life of Jesus' people. Um, Luke uh, tells us in verse 6, Acts chapter 1, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time Restore the kingdom of Israel. So immediately we notice that there's a little bit more data that's given to us in terms of dialogue. Uh, Luke, uh, the, Luke's gospel is a little bit limited on some of the information that we're given about this uh, event. Uh, Luke fills in some blanks and gives some more data, more information about what was actually transpiring, ha- happening. Um, there's more dialogue, obviously. The disciples, followers of Jesus, they're asking Jesus, okay, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel. So this is, this is in some ways uh, revelatory. It's fascinating because it shows us a little bit of the, the true nature of understanding that the followers of Jesus had, which tells us their understanding of what Jesus was up to was still very limited. Their understanding of Jesus was, the best way I would describe it, was sort of uh, they're wondering, Jesus, when will we get back to some form of uber- national Israel. When will Israel become great again? That's what they're wondering. How, Jesus, will we make Israel great again? That's their question. Like, literally, their question. How will Israel, how will we know, will, the, will this be the time in which Israel will be this world superpower or great again? And Jesus basically, in a very subtle way, rebukes them, corrects them, at least. In verse 7, he says, and he said to them, it is not for you to know the time or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. So he basically gently nudges them and says, it's not for you to know. You guys are asking the wrong questions. That's not the right question. The right question is not when will Israel become this massive power again. Wrong question. But he goes on to say, but you, so it's not about when will you, Jesus. Jesus turns it back upon them and says, but you, my disciples, will do something in light of this kingdom after you receive power. So he now then begins to point forward to the Holy Spirit, uh, the, the, the very life, presence, uh, the breath, the wind. Uh, the ancient Hebrew word is uh, a ruach. It's the idea of uh, God's breath, God's life, the animating force, power of God. Or if you want to think about, about it in the, uh, the way that one of my favorite theologians describes it. His name is Gordon Fee. He wrote a book, huge book, this big book, uh, called God's Empowering Presence. It all, it's, all, it's all about the Holy Spirit. Uh, so if you want to think about the Holy Spirit in terms of God's empowering presence, that's a great way to think about it. The Holy Spirit is God. It's not an it. Don't think Star Wars. I mean, think Star Wars. Star Wars is awesome. 
But don't think Star Wars in terms of the Holy Spirit as being like the Force. He's not a Force. He's not inanimate. He's not, uh, uh, he, he's not some sort of like a non-being. Uh, he truly is a being. The, uh, the, the word that's used to describe him is he. He is a personal agency of the living God. Uh, God's empowering. He empowers, but he's also God's presence, meaning he is the very life force, the very animating presence of Yahweh, wherever he's at. And what we're beginning to see right now is that Jesus is saying, uh, it's not for you to worry about when national Israel will become great again, but you will be empowered when the Holy Spirit, God's empowering presence will come upon you. And then he goes on to say, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria, all the way to the end of the world or the end of the earth. And then when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, he went and behold, two men by them with white robes uh, said to him, men of Galilee, why do you stand staring, looking into heaven, gazing into heaven? This same Jesus that was taken up from you into heaven will come again in the same way that you saw him go up into heaven. It's a strange story, but it's a story that we have. It's a story we have to think about. It's a story that we're given. It's a story that has been uh, uh, distributed to us to wrestle, to think, to try to understand. And this is what we have to think about. And so what we're given in terms of the details is that Jesus ascends. He's on a cloud. The disciples are befuddled. They're staring. They're like, oh my gosh, we're losing Jesus, and the response of Jesus, no, you're actually not losing me. You are gaining me in the most profound way that you can ever even imagine, but you can't even imagine that. But in the same way that you're watching me go off into God's presence, whatever that is, we'll talk about that in a second, in the same way I will one day return and bring heaven back to earth in a way that is life-giving and healing and reorders chaos from what it is to something that is beautiful and good. So, again, these are, these are the stories that we have. Uh, the significance of clouds um, are important because what we see, uh, we'll actually come back to this in just a moment as we read a passage in Daniel, but I'm going to move on to the next point. So the next point, first point was the event. The next point we'll take a look at is trying to understand somewhat of meaning, to drive some meaning, like what in the world is going on here? What's happening? What's taking place? Uh, what is this event um, uh, hearkening back to? Uh, what are some of the clues? What are some of the breadcrumbs, as I mentioned, that we can follow that give us some clues to try to make some sense of, of what's going on here? So there's two, uh, at least four passages that I want to look at, two from the direct Old Testament that I think give a lot of insight um, into what's happening. The first one is in the book of 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 2. So if you have no idea where that's at and don't, don't, be, don't be embarrassed, there's this thing at the front of your Bible called the table of contents. It is not inspired. That, that part isn't. Um, it, some, someone wrote it. So feel free to take a look at the table of comp- contents. It's totally okay. Figure out where the book of 2 Kings is, 2 Kings chapter 2. Um, this part seems to be implying uh, some picture of anointing. So I'll, I'll unpack what that means in a moment. We're actually told the story of a guy by the name of Elijah. So there's two people whose names sound very similar. One is named Elijah, E-L-I-J-A-H, and Elisha, E-L-I-S-H-A-H. Um, sound very similar. 
Um, so I'll do my best to talk slowly so you can understand the difference between the two. So Elijah is a prophet. He's a guy that was tasked by God, empowered by God. The Holy Spirit was upon Elijah, who would go around, he would proclaim, he would basically confront the powers of Israel, the evil powers of Israel. So you had kings that were misguiding, misleading, misdirecting the people of Israel. So Elijah's task was to go and confront them. And uh, he, was, he, was a, he was an amazing uh, prophet uh, that was highly disliked by a lot of people. Um, but Elijah had this following of people that were inspired by him because he was always challenging the powers that were oppressing the rest of the people. And, um, but then he had kind of what we would call like maybe like a school of prophets. So a lot of people that were being trained up to be spokesmen for uh, Yahweh in that ancient world. And so um, Elisha was one of those guys. So I like to think about Elijah as being like uh, Yoda or Qui-Gon Jinn. And Elisha is kind of like his little young Padawan, who's learning the ways of, not the force, but learning the ways of, of, of how to speak uh, prophetically in an age that's full of evil. So Elisha uh, is now faced with the imminent departure of his master, Elijah. So you guys following so far? You guys doing okay? Ready? Let's read. It says in the book of 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 1, the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind. So get that? So Elijah is not going to die the way people typically die. He's going to be swept up, taken up. This is, again, if you're like, this is really unusual. Yes, it's exactly, this is very unusual. Uh, it doesn't happen very often. In fact, it, it doesn't happen at all. But this is when it happens. And so these are clues that we're, we need to follow and think about. But what's going on is that Elijah is going to be taken up into heaven. Very similar language. It's used of Jesus. And in being taken up into heaven, uh, there's this dialogue that goes on between him and his young Padawan. And Elisha asks him, um, hey, before you leave or when you leave, can I have a double portion of whatever it is that you got? So again, Elijah is his powerhouse. He, was, uh, he spoke with this incredible uh, profoundness and, and boldness. And uh, he did miracles. He was this really unique guy in the history of the people of Israel. Of, of Israel. So Elisha is like, man, whatever it is that you got, the power of Yahweh on you, can, can I somehow get twice of that? Right? Might sound like a, a unique uh, request, but again, this is the story. And whatever is happening in the life of Jesus being ascended, uh, there are very clear clues from the story of Jesus that link to the story of Elijah and Elisha. So what we're told in the story says, Then Elisha said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you. And before I'm taken up, then Elisha said, Please let me have a double portion of your spirit. So Elisha, Elisha goes up. Elisha uh, gains a double portion of Elisha's, or Elijah's uh, empowerment and spirit. So uh, moving forward to the book of Daniel. I'm going to jump forward a little bit to the book of Daniel. Daniel also was a prophet, very, in so many ways different than Elijah, but he uh, nonetheless spoke uh, boldly with God's, God's word. Uh, it was inspired. It was, it was the words of God speaking through Daniel. And Daniel wrote in a very different time and age. Uh, the people of Israel were... Uh, were an oppressed people. They were living under uh, or living within an exile. They're away from their homeland. Uh, here's Daniel living in the region of what's called Babylon or modern day Iraq. And here they are uh, in the midst of this uh, foreign land. And then Daniel has these visions and these dreams. And 
Uh, he's kind of elevated to a high position within uh, Nebuchadnezzar, who's the king of the empire at that time, his government. And Daniel would, uh, would receive these visions or dreams from God, and then he would write them down, and then he would communicate them, and they would uh, describe future events that would oftentimes end up happening, or that would always end up happening. And so what we see within this particular story in verse 7, Daniel has, in verse 13, uh, he says, I saw the night visions. And behold, the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And then he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. And, when, and, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom uh, that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion was an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. So there's a couple really important characters in this vision that Daniel has. Um, first of all, we notice that there is one that's described as the Ancient of Days. So who's the Ancient of Days? We would, most scholars agree that, uh, that the Ancient of Days is a reference to Yahweh himself, that God himself, the one and true God who sits upon the throne of all humanity, of all the cosmos, of all creator, this is, quote-unquote, the Ancient of Days. But then Daniel sees someone else in his vision, one that he describes who's like the Son of Man, so whoever this Son of Man is, now we, we believe as followers of Jesus that the Son of Man is actually none other than Jesus. That he is the one that was given power, given authority, as Daniel says here. Uh, in fact, we believe that because Jesus embodies this. When we see Jesus doing things on planet Earth, like healing someone who is blind, Jesus says, I'm doing this in the power of Yahweh. When we see Jesus confronting demons, these dark forces, right? Dark forces, however you want to describe them, demons, the devil, dark forces that are, that are part of this work of anti-creation, seeking to undo the very work of Yahweh. When we see Jesus in a contest against them, and, uh, uh, confronting them and overcoming them, what we see is the hand of God confronting these dark forces and undoing what these dark forces have done and in its place bringing forth order. That, that's, that's what's happening. That's the exchange that's taking place when you have blindness being transformed into sight, when you have a body that's crippled being transformed into working properly, when you have a mind that's full of torment being brought into a place of being in its right sound mindedness. This, these are pictures of Yahweh at work. How? Through Whoever this Jesus is, well, who is he? That's the question that's keeping you on the edge of the seat throughout the gospel accounts. Who is this guy? Well, we come to the end and we begin to realize that this is none other than God in the flesh, a.k.a. Jesus of Nazareth, who is none other than God come to rescue and redeem and save. So now we see Jesus ascending back to the Father. So Daniel has this picture where it says, and I saw again these night visions, behold, in the clouds of heaven. So the clouds is also another really important thing that's part of the story because it's part of the story of Luke uh, in, in the book of Acts that Jesus ascends in these clouds. And Jesus even says, look, uh, why are you standing, staring, looking, watching? Don't you know that in the same way, with the same clouds, the Son of Man will come back and return? So what's up with the phrase, the concept of clouds? Now again, According to a Hebrew, according to a Jewish mindset and understanding, this, this would have been uh, very significant. And where clouds, or idea of clouds, come into play is in the story of Exodus. So, for example, 
when God brings the people of Israel out of Egypt and they're wandering through this wilderness. So uh, when you think of the concept of wilderness, don't think of nice, lush greenery. Think um, Fresno, Bakersfield, Inland Valley. Uh, think uh, Carrizo Plains prior to uh, Super Bloom. All right, think total dead. Think, um, you get the idea. Think tumbleweed blowing across. This is the wilderness. Now, you would imagine uh, upwards of 2 million to 3 million people wandering around in the wilderness, this people group, this nomadic tribe, this group of people, this numbers in the hundreds of thousands of people wandering. Uh, it's in some ways... The, the necessity for water and uh, shade uh, was essential to their survival. So how do you carry, how do you survive in the wilderness without water and without shade? Well, this is what God does. This is part of the story, that God takes care of his people by providing water from rocks, by miraculously take caring, t- taking care of them, but also by way of providing what he would describe as a pillar of fire by night, because it gets cold, and a pillar of cloud by day, because it gets really hot. So throughout the history of their journeying through the wilderness, they would travel oftentimes. You know, they would pick up camp. So imagine camping out in the wilderness and having three million people that you were responsible for. And God seems to move around a lot. How do you know when God's actually leading? How do you know when God is saying it's time to move to another place? Well, the way that God would do that in the Old Testament, in that time of the people of Israel, was the cloud. The cloud would move. And they would follow the cloud. And wherever the cloud went, they would follow the cloud because, I mean, out of convenience, of course, but also out of obedience as well. Convenience meaning like uh, w- without, you know, protecting, protection and shade, um, you, you get really hot. And so, but also out of obedience. It was a way of obeying God. So imagine, imagine being uh, somebody that whenever you're trying to understand, like making sense of, God, where are you leading me? Imagine if your life was that easy. I mean, let's say, for example, you're like, God, who should I marry? And all of a sudden, a cloud appears over somebody. Or you're like, God, where should I go to school? Or God, where should I get a job? Or where should I move? And a cloud forms over particular zones and parts of your life. And you're like, oh, that's easy. It's nice. But that's not how God works, right? It'd be awesome if he did, but he, he doesn't. Um, sometimes he drops clues and leads us in other ways. But the point of the matter is, in, in that day, the cloud was the depiction of God's presence that led them and guided them. It was, it was another way of thinking about it. It was also the cloud was introduced uh, during the time of Solomon, when King Solomon uh, built this incredible temple, this incredible place for God's presence. Uh, we're told that a cloud, the cloud of God, uh, gathered over the, the, the temple, and it was a way of signifying the very presence, the tangible reality of Yahweh was there. So when you read in Daniel's account, I saw him ascending through the clouds, you're supposed to think the presence of Yahweh. When Jesus is ascending from wherever mount he was up to the presence of God, and there's surrounded by clouds, you're to draw this depiction back, follow the breadcrumb trail all the way back to the book of Daniel, perhaps even back to the story of 2 Kings, back to realizing that this is about the very presence of Yahweh going public being made known, becoming available to all. So with that, keep on reading. I'm going to jump into the New Testament now and begin to take a look a little bit at the book of John, chapter 20. Uh, Again, we're just following these stories. 
This uh, takes us to the, uh, right after the resurrection, Jesus rises again from the dead, and uh, next slide, uh, we see a little bit about the story of Mary. And so what we're told in John chapter 20, verse 11, I think we're working on it, here we go, got it. John chapter 20, verse 11 says, And Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped into the tomb, and when she saw the two angels in white sitting there, uh, where, no, where the body of Jesus had lain, one, of, one at the head and one at the feet, they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Verse 14, he says, Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And then Jesus had said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, this is kind of, there's some really fascinating details within this so far. I mean, uh, what we learn a little bit about Mary, uh, who is in a lot of ways representative of the rest of the disciples, is that nobody, nobody was expecting Jesus to rise again from the dead. Why was Mary there? Post-mortem anointing. Like, like which just simply means she had spices. She wanted to uh, grieve the loss of the one whom she loved. She loved Jesus. And now he's dead. So you, you feel this sense of pathos. You feel this sense of like angst and sorrow and grief because in the midst of loss, Jesus is gone. He's dead. The least I can do is to go and anoint his body as a way of just saying how much I love him. She shows up and the tomb's open and the body's gone and she's freaking out. She sees Jesus. She doesn't know it's Jesus. Again, it's kind of fascinating little detail. It says that she assumes that he's the gardener. What, what's that all about? All right, this phrase takes us all the way back to the book of Genesis. It might be shocking to some of you. But um, in the beginning, God created Adam and Eve and deposited them and placed them where? Where did God put them? In the garden. In the garden. Um, sin, rebellion, brokenness broke out where? In the garden. Uh, this is John's way of saying healing first would come in the garden. It's God bringing the story all the way back to where it broke. God's amazing like this. God doesn't cast off that which is ruined and broken and in chaos. He brings it back to where it was broken and brings about a reordering. Jesus is assumed to be a gardener, and then all of a sudden Jesus then speaks to her and he says, Mary. Something about the way that Jesus says her voice, she comes to life, she recognizes his tone or his, the way he says her, her voice, uh, maybe. And again, there's all sorts of assumptions as to who Mary Magdalene is. We're told that this is Mary Magdalene at the end of the story. Um, some assume that Mary Magdalene may have been a prostitute at one point, And the way that Jesus said her name was different than any other man has ever said her name or maybe even never said her name but just said, called her a woman. But Jesus says her name in such a way that is dignifying, humanizing. She comes to life. She's like, oh my gosh, Rabboni, which is uh, a way, an Aramaic way of saying, my teacher, you are back. And all of a sudden, this dialogue goes on between the two of them. It says, and then Jesus then said to her, do not cling to me. So obviously, within the storyline, the detail that's taking place is, she grabs a hold of Jesus and lays a hold of him and choking him, death grip on Jesus. And then Jesus says, uh, don't cling to me. And then he says, because I have not yet ascended to my father. Now, 
it's kind of funny because there's all sorts of ways in which people have been, you know, translate or interpreted this. Uh, some have said that, that, that Jesus is literally being strangled by Mary. Doubtful, but that's, that's what some would say. Like, Jesus is like, come on, don't choke me. You're killing me. Like, like I don't want to die again. But um, the fact of the matter is, is I, don't, I don't know if that's the case. Others would say, well, Jesus is saying, you know, my, my, my body's sacred. It's holy. Don't touch it. But that can't be the case either because there's other occasions where Jesus actually says to some of his other disciples, like Thomas, he says, touch me. Touch me. Feel that I'm actually alive. I'm actually a human body. So the idea of this somehow being some sort of weird, holy, sacred body that shouldn't be touched can't be the case. What seems to be happening here, this is the best description I, I feel like I heard, so I'll just pass it on to you, is that what seems to be happening is that Mary is clinging onto Jesus, the physical, tangible body of Jesus, as if to say, I lost you once, I will never, ever lose you again. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no Mary, you don't, you don't get it. I have to go. And by me going, you think it's going to be your loss. It will actually be your gain in the most profound, magnified, beautiful way. Me going away will actually create the context where my presence will be magnified in your life in ways that you could never even comprehend. That's what Jesus seems to be saying. So she says, don't cling to me because I have not yet ascended to the Father. And she go, he goes on to say, but then now go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to the Father. Again, this is the ascension phrase again. Then she went and she announced. So we see Mary as this, uh, this gospeler, this preacher, this communicator of good news. All right, I want to read uh, one final passage. And uh, you've got to turn forward real quick to the book of Acts. The book of, book of Acts, chapter 7. And we're introduced to the story of a guy by the name of Stephen. Um, as the early church was moving forward, um, they were taking this message of Jesus um, forth. And the thing with the message of Jesus was that, on one hand, depending upon those that were in power, uh, in the case of the religious leaders, they had a religious system, they had a temple that was perhaps, in modern-day terms, multi-billions of dollars worth of property and stuff and goods. And so they had this reality, this realization that all of this stands threatened. If this Jesus really is king, if he really has come to reorder the world as we know it, that means that our empire is threatened. So we've got to suppress this thing. We've got to suppress those that are gospeling, that are preaching, that are proclaiming. So anybody that has the message of Jesus must be silenced. And so we see that taking place. So in Acts chapter 7, there's, we're introduced to this character by the name of Stephen. He's one of the early church leaders. Uh, he goes out and he speaks. Uh, he's given this opportunity to, to, to share, to communicate. So it's the longest recorded sermon, actually, in the book of Acts. It's pretty fascinating. I'm not going to read through it. But um, one of the things that we see is that as he's communicating, the religious leaders are so offended, so frustrated by the message that he says, that they have actually determined to do to Stephen the very thing that they had done to Jesus. Not crucify, but ultimately kill. They needed to eradicate, they needed to get rid of, they needed to wipe out, they needed to silence uh, the voice of Stephen because it was posing a threat to their empire. And so they picked up stones. Now in the midst of this milieu of chaos and mob mentality, we're told that Stephen uh, is indicated that he's filled with the Holy Spirit. So again, this is, this is post-resurrection. Jesus is already resurrected from the dead. He's already ascended into heaven. He's at the right hand of the Father right now. In other words, this is all after the events that we just read in Luke's account as well as in the book of Acts that 
beginning of chapter 1. Now we're told that uh, Stephen, who was full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and he saw the glory of God. And Jesus was standing at the right hand of God. And he said to him, Behold, I saw the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. It's a tragedy. But what we see with Stephen is that in the midst of this story is that somehow Stephen was able to stand with some level of poise even though the whole world had turned against him. Stephen was able to stand with some level of poise. What's shocking about this is that here's Stephen standing against the powers, the religious system that represented the most powerful religious system on planet Earth. They're standing there with stones in hands and accusations and fingers pointed. And they're basically saying, Stephen, you are guilty. You're to be killed. You're to be destroyed and crushed. And yet from heaven, Stephen hears, sees, is reminded that actually from the voice of the one who really truly matters, above and beyond any other opinion in this planet, is actually saying, not guilty, acquitted. So Stephen is able to face his accusers, those who hate him, those that are seeking to crush him with some level of poise and rest even while he's in the midst of insanity. So I want to finish with some implications of this. What does it mean for us? Uh, How does, let me put it another way, how does this event of an ascended Jesus at the right hand of the Father right now, how does this event actually impact our lives. So here's four ways, I think, that we can uh, chew on this and think about this. There may be a handful more, but these are four that I just kind of had come up with. One, I think it gives us a renewed sense of vocation. Uh, in other words, what I mean by that is it gives us a renewed hope, a renewed way of identifying, seeing that what we do in this life right now has the potential of actually mattering to the kingdom of God. Or... It could just be typical, stereotypical drudgery. Another day at the office, another day flipping pancakes, another day having to deal with people that are ridiculous to have to work with, another day of drudgery. Or it could give you a renewed sense of vocation. What do I mean by that? So, because Jesus rose again from the dead, not in a spirit body, but in a physical body. I don't even think there is any such thing as a spirit body. I think it's an oxymoron. Isn't that right? Spirit, body, Right? It's an oxymoron. You guys know what an oxymoron is? Google it. You get the idea. Um, Jesus is in a physical body. Uh, one of the greatest uh, quotes I've, I've read in a long time actually came from um, Martin Luther. And if you're familiar with him, he was the guy that kind of launched the Reformation and whatnot. But uh, he was asked one day, uh, you know, what would you do if you knew that Jesus was going to come back tomorrow? What would you do tomorrow? He would say, I would plant a tree. I'm like, are you kidding? Why would you plant the tree? He's all, imagine how that tree would flourish if Jesus came and sustained and stopped all the forces of death and destruction in this world. Imagine how it would flourish. He had an understanding about creation that many modern Christians simply do not. What do I mean? I mean this. I think many modern Christians have settled for a faulty understanding of what God is doing in this world. What I mean by that is many Christians have settled for a two-step work of creation. We've settled for an idea that God's aim in this world is to do nothing but to, quote-unquote, 
save us so that when we die, we'll go to heaven. And that's the extent of it. And I'm going to say that it's not inaccurate, but it's incomplete. God's real aim in this world is to not somehow move us out of planet Earth off to some ethereal realm for all eternity. That is not Bible teaching. That is more in line with Platonism. Platonic view that this earth is evil, physicality is bad, the greatest hope of all humanity is to somehow escape physicality, to get into some sort of ethereal state. That is not biblical view of creation. The biblical view of creation is that this earth is horribly broken and ruined and full of disease and death and destruction. It aches, it groans, it yearns for healing and wholeness. You and I are riddled with destruction and disease and evil and wickedness and sin and we wrestle with death and we ache and groan and yearn for someone to come to heal us and make us whole. This is what God does. He comes into this world and he brings healing to you and I as individuals. He brings salvation the way we would describe it. The hope of creation is not that God will somehow pull us out of planet earth and send us off into some distant galaxy, but that hope of this earth is that one day Christ will return and reorder the brokenness of this earth. It's exactly what Jesus meant when he said, when you pray, say, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be the name, uh, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The hope of this world is not for God to destroy it and send us off into some distant land. The hope of this world is for heaven to finally come and bring rectification and healing and wholeness. That's what John finishes the book of Revelation by saying, and I saw a new heavens and a new earth. This is Genesis 1 language. And behold, it was good. See, the earth we live on right now is filled with brokenness, sin, disease, rebellion, death. But Jesus conquered death. That's what the resurrection is all about. The ascension is that Jesus is reminding us, look, right now there will be a duration of time for a long time, who knows how long, 1,000 years, 2,000 years, 20,000 years, we don't know how long. But in that, throughout that duration of time, I will be with you in the most profound ways. But one day, I will return. And I will bring heaven and the wholeness and the healing of heaven with me. And this earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. So some of you might be asking the question, well, wait a minute, I thought... When I die, I go to heaven. The answer to that is yes. You, when you die right now, if you were to die tomorrow, don't be too morbid, but if you were to die tomorrow, you will go to be with in the presence of God. To be absent from the body is to be present with God. What's that called? Oh, we can call it heaven. That's fine. It's the presence of God. It's the place of God. Heaven is not so much a place. It's a person. Jesus is the embodiment of life and joy and glory goodness and substance itself he he is what gives i mean some have described that a heaven without jesus would actually be a hell jesus is what creates the beauty of wherever it is that he goes wherever his presence is is what heaven is jesus is who we look for in the hope of the ascension is we're told that in the same way that jesus exited he will one day return. There's a hope and a promise that we have. So what that means is that right now, what you put your hands to, what you create, how you serve, how you work, could actually become these insane harbingers or 
indicators or neon glowing signs pointing to the kingdom of Christ that will one day come. How? By doing a work in such a way that points to new creation. By doing your work in such a way that is glorious and good and beautiful for the sake of God. In other words, it gives us this renewed sense of vocation that what you do right now matters. The image that we're left with is we have an incredible hope that lay ahead of us, not by exiting this earth, but by heaven itself coming here and bringing wholeness and healing in a profound way. This is the story of scripture from A to Z. So the next thing is to think about uh, implication in terms of a renewed sense of presence. And what I see with regard to this is Jesus says, if I go away, then my spirit, my presence will come. And where he is, he will empower you. He will embolden you. He will give you strength to be my witnesses. So what this means is that the fear for the disciples was that, Jesus, if you go away, we are at a loss. And Jesus is like, no, 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 you don't get it. If I go away, you will be at a profound overflow. Do you get that? That's exactly what Jesus is saying. We are afraid. They were afraid. Jesus, you're gonna, we're going to lose you. And they're like, no, no, you're not going to lose me. You're going to get me in a way that's magnified, in a way that's manifold, in a way that you can't even comprehend. My presence will be with you wherever you go, empowering, emboldening, strengthening you for the task. Lay ahead. The third implication, I think, is joy. That Jesus said to Mary, uh, you know, go and tell. And she walks away with joy. And the disciples, when they saw Jesus, realized what he was doing. There was a sense of joy. I think this is what we see with regard to Mary's life. This joy becomes a part of who we are because we recognize that we are not alone in this world. That God is actually up to something and is actually with us as we trust in him. And finally, we see the sense of rest again, I think of Stephen, and here's Stephen in this particular context where uh, all the forces, these powerful forces are against him. They have the power of the sword. Think about that. What's the most powerful thing that you can wield in this life? It's the power of sword, the power of death, right? I mean, it's the greatest threat, if, I and mean, maybe not just so much the greatest threat against somebody. I mean, you can say, I have the power of the sword against your family, against your daughter, against your wife. But nonetheless, it's all part about the power of the sword. It's power of death. So here's Stephen standing in front of people that literally had the power of the sword. They got stones in hand. They're ready to kill him. They have reason to kill, kill him. They have motivation to kill him. They have access to means to kill him. Stephen is going to die. And here Stephen sees the ascended king and all of a sudden is overcome with a sense of rest in the midst of the most insane tumultuous type of circumstance because he sees the fact that the king of all the universe, the one opinion above every other opinion in this world that truly matters, says to Stephen, I see you and you're acquitted. I'm with you. Don't be afraid. Guys, think about this for a moment. If you allow this one truth, this one truth out of of all these, this one truth to sink deep in your heart. Do you realize how you will be a liberated, free person? What do I mean? Most of us, we spend uh, exuberant amounts of energy somehow trying to uh, get accolades and affirmation from people in our lives, whether it be peers, friends, a dad, 
people by way of social media to somehow affirm us, to look at us, to see us as significant, to see us as important, to see what we do as somehow of great importance. And we spend all this energy somehow trying to get others to approve of us. The problem is, is that everybody else's opinion is always off the map, up and down, constantly changing, constantly shifting, constantly mutable. But the one opinion that matters above any other opinion in the universe, the opinion of God, if you see it in the life of Christ, his opinion of you is, I love you. Do you realize how that will liberate you? It'll free you? It'll free you from the constant slavery and the enslavement that we put ourselves under in trying to somehow shift or change or uh, transform or influence the opinions of others that might change right now, but in two days be completely different. They might love you right now, but three days from now they might hate you. Right now they might think you're an amazing person. Five days from now they might think that you're a horrible person. You imagine how that will set you free. And this is what Stephen had. He had this recognition that God is on the throne. My God, who rescued me, is rooting for me, is praying for me, he's advocating for me. I'll set you free. It set him free. Final one is rest. Uh, as I just mentioned, it does this, has this profound effect upon our hearts and our lives. If you let it. So to finish with this thought, the ascension of Jesus was not the loss of Jesus among them. Rather, it was this explosive magnification of Jesus among them. This is the increased pre- presence of Jesus, if you would, among them. Because while Jesus was with them in, in a body, that meant that Jesus was limited to location. With Jesus departing and then sending out his spirit, his spirit that could be everywhere at every time because it's not limited by physicality. And I want to finish with this thought for you to chew on and think about. I read one guy who wrote something along these lines, and I'll just kind of paraphrase it. He says this, that if you or I are standing around simply gazing into heaven, waiting, looking, grieving the fact of our loss, and or are filled with sadness, these are two clear signs that we have not fully comprehended the glory of the ascension of Christ. If we're sitting around gazing, waiting for something to happen, waiting for this world to change, and not doing anything, not getting on, not getting into what God is all up to in this life, or we are overcome on a repeated basis, not periodic, not momentary, not episodical moments of sadness, because we'll have that as part of this life. But if that is what is chronic about our life, chronic sadness, chronic frustration, chronic just obsessiveness over these things, then it's a very good indicator of the fact that you have not fully grasped the reality of the ascension. And as always, it's an invitation to receive a new way of understanding who Christ is. That's why we teach the Bible. That's why we read the Bible. That's why we encourage you to read the Bible. We encourage you to listen to podcasts and read good books. It's because every time we educate and have truth going to our hearts, it creates the raw material to give us a new story to live by, a new story to trust. That's what the gospel is all about. It's always an invitation to turn our backs upon the false narratives that we believed, to turn our backs upon the stories that we've clung to and held tightly to that have always promised as much and always have failed to deliver and to believe the narrative of the gospel. This is good news. That God truly does love us, no matter how broken, how messed up, how ruined we are, how horrible of rebels we were at once 
and at one point, that God still nonetheless loves us, sent his son, and his love was not some sort of sappy, sentimental, greeting card type of love. It was a love that was willing to bear our sin, guilt, shame, sorrow upon himself so that we, who are guilty, could receive the declaration of acquitted, that we've been accepted by Christ. And to the degree that you see that Christ now is on the right hand of God, pleading your cause, fighting for you, praying for you, loving you in the most profound way, that has this potential to liberate you, to be the person that God calls you to be in this life, filled with hope, filled with grace, filled with strength. It allows you to be able to be bold, but simultaneously humble. Because we didn't do anything. God did it for us. But God now empowers us to be part of his kingdom in this world, proclaiming, living forth, using our lives and our hands and our bodies as uh, instruments for building for his kingdom. So it's an invitation all the time. So if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, the invitation is always the same, to trust this king and his goodness. If you're here this morning, you're not, you are a Christian, and maybe you've heard bits and pieces of the story before. Maybe you've never even heard it this way before. The invitation is for you to receive in a new way the profundity of this story and be impacted by it and let it transform your life forever to let your heart be changed and transformed. So, I'm done. We're going to pray, and we're going to sing a couple songs, partake of communion. If you're here this morning, you need prayer for anything, I'll be in the front. We'll have some other leaders that would also love to be up in front and pray with you. But why don't we all stand? Let's sing. Let's respond to God. Let's respond to this God that is really alive. Not just in our hearts. It's not just like, oh, yes, he's alive. But he truly is alive. It's not just some sort of warm, fuzzy healing that Christians agree on. Like, yes, King Jesus is, we have good memories of him. But he truly is alive and reigning, the King of kings and Lord of lords. In dominion, as Daniel says, is in his hand. In his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. World without end. Forever and ever. Amen. That's what we celebrate. So let me pray and let's sing. God, thank you for this kingdom that you have come to give. And our response is to receive, to trust.